All right, we are right at time, and so I'm going to kick this off so that we keep ourselves on time. Awesome. Thanks for coming to this session here today. We really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Chris Munns. I'm currently a principal developer advocate for serverless at AWS. Uh, I'm going to be joined on stage here a little bit later by Samya Sopal from Centrica to talk about their journey to moving applications to serverless. Again, the, this is ENT314-R1. So this is the, the one repeat that we have at this session this week. Again, this is the future of enterprise applications is serverless. Uh, again, Chris Munns, I uh, lead developer advocacy for serverless uh, at AWS. I'm part of the Lambda and API Gateway and Step Functions and App Repo and SAM team. Uh, super exciting day for us in our organization today. Uh, we were so excited that Werner did so much talking about this topic. And so uh, unfortunately, we, we build these decks a little bit ahead of time of knowing what Werner's going to talk about. And I'm really upset that he stole so much of my content. Um, and so I'll, I'll talk to him about that later, maybe. But uh, so why are we here today, right? So serverless, super hot topic. There's a reason that Werner spent half of his keynote this morning, if you got a chance to see it, talking about serverless, bringing up awesome companies like Fender to talk about their journey to serverless. And so again, this is not a, a little bit of a, uh, a small topic or a bubble that's going to come and go. This is, we believe, the future of application design and where we see our customers taking this tech. Now, Werner did this a little bit in his talk today in kind of taking a step back and looking at how, at least at AWS, we've thought about building up our technology over the years. Uh, he went so far back as to, I think, 2004 and talked about a major outage that we had. But I want to set the context even a little further back than that. Uh, so Amazon was founded back in 1994, and up till about 2001, we looked like most enterprises still do today. We were monolithic organizations such as development and operations and testing and security and DBAs, and we had a monolithic product. So pretty much everything that you did on Amazon.com back then was part of this large single monolithic application, uh, and most of it was actually written in Perl. And right about 2001 is when we started to go through a pretty massive transformation in how we thought about building our product and, organization, and organizing our people. And so you heard uh, my friend talk today about how S3 is uh, 200 plus microservices just for S3 behind the scenes. But we started this journey back in 2002 of decomposing Amazon.com and then eventually building up the rest of our businesses, such as AWS, in this model. And so today, inside of Amazon, there are many thousands of microservices that power everything from Alexa to the technology that powers Kindle applications to the technology that handles our advertising business. So microservices is how we think about building applications. The second is how we organize ourselves. And so at Amazon, we use this concept called two pizza teams. Essentially, what it means is that any team that's working on any problem <clears throat> Uh, could easily potentially be fed by two pizzas. I like to joke that maybe after a couple of rounds on a Friday night, you might challenge yourself to be a two-pizza person. Uh, but reality is it means about six to 10 people working on a team. And so that team will own some number of microservices, some component of an overall product. And this is how we've operated for most of the last, I would say, 16 to 17 years now. now one thing I like to talk about with these two pizza teams inside of Amazon is that when you come in as a developer at Amazon, one thing we do is give you a, a really flexible, really well-rounded box of tools. And we tell you, take these tools and go and build whatever it is that your product, your business, what you're going to be doing needs to do. And the idea here is that we don't want you to have to go to the hardware store and buy those tools yourself and figure them out and figure out which one's the right one for you. We want to have these great standards that you can build upon. And actually, this concept is what led to us building things like S3, 
DynamoDB, SQS, other services like that. And so essentially what I'd like to say here, and this is probably one of the world's worst Venn diagrams because there's almost no overlap between these two circles, is that we want our teams focusing on just their code, just their product, just what they have to do to solve their business need. We don't want them thinking about all of the tooling that they might have to build or invent themselves or find someplace. And so again, this is with the one exception of if their product is one of those tools, then they would care about it. So the code deploy team cares a whole lot about deploying applications. They will, however, care a lot less about monitoring metrics tools, logging tools, and so forth. And so we routinely try to find, again, ways to shift stuff into that blue circle. But when we look at what these teams still have to do when it comes to the things that they've had to run traditionally, there's still a lot of responsibilities that they have. Uh, that building of that product has a lot of things beyond just writing code into a text editor. They have to think about infrastructure management, things like CI and CD pipeline configuration, alarms, runbooks, roadmaps, compliance, um, security, all sorts of other aspects that they might have to think about. And what we aim to do is find a really strong balance between the time that they spend on the things in the green circle that still aren't even really their product, and think about what we can do to shift more of this responsibility over to the blue. And so back in 2014, uh, we first announced Lambda, so a little over four years ago. And again, this comes from another saying that Werner has, which is that no server is easier to manage than no server. So we spent a lot of time here over the last couple of days between Andy's keynote and Werner's keynote talking about all the various managed services that we've built inside of Amazon uh, and the services that we have here at AWS that you can make use of. So I know Werner kind of talked a little bit about this today. But what does serverless mean for us? Where do we kind of draw a, a box and say the things in this box are serverless? And so for us, it comes down to kind of four key guiding principles. One, that you should never have to think about managing a physical or virtual server or managing any sort of container infrastructure yourself. The second is that it should scale with usage. So as requests come in, or data comes in, or records come in, you should be able to handle whatever that workload is, turn back those requests, and, and do whatever the need is for that usage. You should never have to pay for idle. And so with products like Lambda, if you're not using it, if your application's getting no traffic, then you're not paying for anything while it is configured and could be there waiting to take traffic. And then lastly, high availability and fault tolerance is built in. Werner talked a lot today about how we have regions. Inside of regions are availability zones. And then inside of availability zones, we practice an architectural pattern called cell-based architecture, where even inside of those AZs, we chop them down further and further and think about making sure that anything that could happen inside of an AZ has a reduced blast radius of impact. And so again, for anything that has to be, or that we consider serverless, it needs to meet these four criteria. Now, that's nice from a technical standpoint, but what does it mean from a business outcome standpoint? And it was great again to hear today uh, from folks from Fender and NAB coming up and talking about what serverless has done for them. And I like to think about, and what I hear from a lot of customers that I talk to, are the benefits that they get from it that are not technical. So things like greater agility, much better focus on your application, uh, the ability to handle increased scale. We talk to a lot of customers who say, if I had to run this on-prem myself, the amount of hardware I'd have to own would be ridiculous. But I can do this on Lambda without ever having to think about that capacity planning. And faster time to market, which is important for everyone from startups up through enterprises that are looking to make shifts in building new technology, new features, and new business lines. So at the center of this world for us here at AWS is AWS Lambda. Again, you heard a lot of things today from both Holly and from Werner about what Lambda is. So Lambda is a compute service. At the end of the day, there are servers inside of serverless, but you never have to think about them. 
Uh, even when we open source cool technology like Firecracker, which we've talked about this week, it's not something that most of you will ever touch. It's something that will continue to operate at the bottom of the stack, providing great value to you, but not something that in this world you should have to ever think about. We want you focused on your application code. And so Lambda sits inside of a couple of concentric circles of topics or ideas. Uh, we've seen this concept of microservices over the last decade or so transform the way that companies build businesses. Microservices have lent themselves to this concept called event-driven compute, where you can look at the various interactions between components, both those that are user-driven and those that are internally service-driven, and find ways of treating those as individual events that can be tracked, routed, shipped, et cetera, differently than you would think of uh, in more traditional applications. Event-driven compute lends itself to working really well with something called functions as a service. The idea that you're going to write really small bits of code that align just to those events so that you can, again, decompose that monolithic application into something that's a lot more distributed. And so in the center of the space sits a serverless functions as a service offering, which is what Lambda is. Again, it meets those four criteria that I talked about before of you not having to manage any infrastructure, hardware, operating systems, et cetera. It scales automatically with usage. You don't pay for idle, and it's highly available. Now, when we talk about a serverless application, there's basically three main components that we think of from a, a high level. There is the event source, and today there's almost about 40 different services at AWS that can directly invoke Lambda, plus its own API that you can write your applications against. And those services are things like API Gateway, which can take API call requests and then invoke Lambda functions, or Amazon S3, where when you put an object in a bucket, you can go and invoke a Lambda function. And even last week, the AWS team, the S3 team came out with something called S3 Batch, which allows you at any point in time to look at a bucket and take the objects in that bucket and invoke Lambda functions to do some sort of work on them. Now, your Lambda function then is code that you write. This is your business logic. Uh, up until today, we had uh, Node.js, Python, Java, Go, and .NET. We then announced today Ruby as a managed language. And then we also announced the Runtime API, which we'll talk about here a little more in a moment, which allows you to bring any language that you want to Lambda. You don't need to wait for us to do more managed languages. You can just start doing it today. Now, I'll say, though, we, we definitely plan on looking at expanding managed languages in the future. And so we're always looking for customer feedback of which ones you care the most about, where we can take on the burden of managing that language for you. And then your application code does whatever it is that you need it to do. Maybe you need to talk to a database or a data store or another API or some sort of other service inside of your VPC. And that's something that you control. Again, this is your code. This is your logic, whatever it is that your application needs to do. And so that's kind of the main three pillars, I would say, of what a serverless application looks like. Now, again, we were really excited today to launch uh, two key features in Lambda. Uh, one is called the Runtime API. The other is called Lambda Layers. Uh, and actually, the Runtime API is built on top of Layers, and so I'll talk about that first. One of the things that we continue to see customers do in serverless applications is have lots of places where they need to reuse code. If you think of, say, an API that you have where you have 50 or 60 API endpoints, that might correlate to 50 to 60 different uh, Lambda functions. There's going to be code that you have that maybe needs to talk to databases, uh, perform common business logic, uh, things like encryption and stuff like that, that you would want all of that code or any dependencies or packages in each of those functions. And so typically what you would have to do is package that in individually with those functions yourself. And so this was a little tedious, a little bit of overhead. And so what Lambda Layers allows you to do is create a second artifact from your application artifact. You could put any sort of code, data, dependencies, et cetera, into that. 
When you configure your function, you have your function's artifact, the code that you wrote, and you can reference that layer. And these layers can be versioned, they can be shared, uh, and so inside of your organization, you can really easily now share this code inside the Lambda environment. Now, one thing you could do with a layer is you can actually now make a runtime for any language that you want to run. And so today we announced uh, examples for C++ and for Rust. Uh, we have a number of partners that have done things like Erlang, Elixir, and even COBOL. And so we're really looking forward to all these COBOL workloads you're all going to bring us over on the Lambda side. Um, but these are just examples of what you could do. Uh, you could do things like uh, uh, Haskell. You could do things like PHP. You could do things, basically anything you'd want inside of this. Uh, some folks and I were just joking on Twitter before. I don't want to put this idea in your head, but if you really, 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 really wanted to, you could actually make a custom runtime that would execute a Docker container for you. And so you can finally put Docker in Lambda, which is something that I guess some people have wanted. Uh, and so again, with the custom runtime API now, you can run any language that you want on Lambda. Uh, we're going to start to see a whole bunch of these come up in the open source community. And so again, there should not be any blockers from a language perspective to what you'd want to run inside of Lambda. Now, when it comes to talking a little bit further about your Lambda function and the anatomy of it, uh, this is something that is consistent across all of the languages, including the custom runtime. And so there's this concept of a handler in a Lambda function. This is essentially where it is that the Lambda service is going to attempt to look to execute your code to insert an event into. So this is the home of where your business execution would begin. Now, another thing is that on every invocation of Lambda, and again, it is event-driven service, we are going to pass in an event structure. So in the case of an API, this is going to be all of the bits and pieces of that API request that you would expect there to be. In the case of, say, an S3-driven event, this is going to be the bucket and object. Um, and in the case of things like SNS, this is going to be the message, so on and so forth. And so typically, you're going to take that event, and you're going to process it and pull it apart and do what you need to do. Then the last bit is the context object. And so the context object is a little bit of a mix of information about the underlying infrastructure and how you maybe have configured a Lambda function, for example, things like timeouts. And so you might use the context object to uh, look up information about your function's environment, interface with that in different ways, and there's various use cases for that. Now, Lambda, which I was, don't think actually Werner mentioned this today, but for those of you who are not familiar with it, has a very unique pricing model. Uh, Lambda functions are built in basically a, a very simple math of two things. The amount of memory that you configured your function for, and today we support everything from 128 megabytes up to three gigabytes, and the duration of your function execution in hundreds of milliseconds. So this is not paying for hours, it's not even paying for minutes, it's hundreds of milliseconds. Uh, and we find that much of the customer's code that we have does execute in a very small period of time. And so we also have a very generous free tier, so you get one million requests per month uh, and a total of 400 gigabits per second of compute. And so based on the amount of memory you configure your functions for. No, uh, no concept of you know, reservations, no minimums, no contracts, obviously nothing like that that you have to think about. So an incredibly, incredibly flexible billing model that correlates very much directly with the business need of your application. And so you get a really interesting ROI when you use serverless that ties directly to the consumption of your application. We actually see customers talk about how they look at their functions that cost them the most and say, how can we prioritize or how can we improve the performance of this to lower the cost? Now, that's something that's very difficult in a more monolithic application where you have various bits of capability all mixed on the same hardware. And so with serverless, you can get really, really, really great fine-grained, utilized 
uh, utilization improvements over time. So uh, this is something I'm really proud of. I put this slide together back in October and uh, tweeted it out, and Werner liked it. And what I didn't know is that he then had it remade for his presentation today. So you saw it probably aligned a little bit differently. But what this represents is all of the features and capabilities that we made public and launched in Lambda since we first launched the product uh, up to this past October. And it works out to be about a feature launch per month. Uh, so there's quite a lot of stuff that we've done. And then obviously just here in the last two weeks, we've announced uh, Python uh, uh, 3.7. Uh, we've announced Ruby. We've announced layers. We've announced runtimes. We've announced a couple of other things. And so this diagram is already quite well out of date. But Lambda is a very mature product in AWS terms. It's got a lot of capabilities. It's got, uh, we launched back a couple weeks back uh, in October as well in SLA. And so again, this is something that you can feel comfortable building critical business infrastructure on top of. And again, we've heard the stories from Fender and NAB about how they've done just that. So when we think about Lambda use cases, there's a couple that we bucket basically uh, all the use cases that we see into. So the first is web applications, pretty straightforward. People are building web applications that need to be powered by APIs. And so Lambda can act as an API backend behind API Gateway uh, to serve that request. Now, with the integration that was announced today with ALB, uh, the application load balancer, you can actually use Lambda as just a straight HTTP serving uh, capability. So you can actually just put it in with any other uh, technology like EC2 or ECS that you have behind an ALB and serve up HTML directly from Lambda if you so wanted to. We also have a lot of customers doing uh, backends. These are backends for things like mobile and IoT, as well as internal microservices for businesses. And so as we see that growth of microservices happen, when again, the, the conversation earlier today about how S3 is 200 plus microservices, uh, most of those are not things that you ever interface with, but those are all the kind of things that can run inside of Lambda. Data processing, so real time stream processing, batch processing, uh, even things like MapReduce. Uh, the folks in UC Berkeley put out an incredible framework called PyRen, which does uh, effectively MapReduce using Python inside of Lambda and found that it had massive linear scalability uh, beyond what they were seeing sometimes even in things like Hadoop for a much, much lower cost. Chatbots and Alexa, two separate things, but two that align very closely with each other. So when it comes to chatbots, we see chatbots showing up all over the place, not just in external uh, use cases of a business for their outside customers, but also internally. We see chatbots being used for things like facilities management, help desk, HR, and stuff like that to make it easier for people to get information from their own organizations. Alexa, if you happen to have an Alexa-capable device at home and you ask our good friend Alexa to do something, you ask her a question, uh, there's a good chance that the way that she responds is by invoking a Lambda function that powers the uh, Alexa skill that you're invoking at that time. And so the Alexa team says that Lambda is the best platform for creating Alexa skills, and we see many people do that. It's actually a really fun kind of weekend hack project if you ever want to take one on. And then lastly, IT automation. And this is where most people kind of start to dip their toes into working with serverless and building serverless applications. So today, across the various services that we have in our developer management tool suite, almost all of them have a way to invoke Lambda for some sort of custom logic. If you look at CloudTrail, you have the ability to uh, send messages over an SNS topic that can then invoke Lambda if you want to look for, say, uh, API calls that shouldn't have been made inside your account. With Code Pipeline, you have the ability to trigger a Lambda function to do a custom action as part of your CI and CD process. 
With code commit, you can have a post commit trigger that is a Lambda function that could perform, say, code inspection, linting, or looking for secrets that were stored inside your code uh, by mistake. And so there's lots of things that you can do here from a policy perspective, from an infrastructure automation perspective. And again, this is something we see a lot of usage of. So that's Lambda. And Lambda is a big part of the serverless world for us here at AWS. Again, you heard some really great stuff in Werner's keynote today about that uh, and a number of good talks this week covering you know, all sorts of various aspects. The next biggest part of the serverless uh, ecosystem that we have is API Gateway. And so Amazon API Gateway provides a number of different capabilities in helping you better manage APIs. Now, AWS didn't invent the concept of an API Gateway. There are many others out there in the industry. There are uh, event gateways or API Gateways that you can run yourself. There are other managed API Gateways. There's open source ones. There's enterprise ones. All sorts of different API Gateways out there. I typically recommend for a company that if you're building API-based technology, get an API Gateway. Standardize on it. Make it the thing that's common across your entire company. Now, API Gateways typically provide a number of different benefits, things like unifying an interface for various APIs, things like giving you the ability to do usage tiers and throttling. With API Gateway here, we also have the ability with uh, integrated DDoS protection. We recently, back at the end of October, announced uh, integration with our web application firewall uh, and a number of capabilities that API Gateway has. It can create client SDKs for you. It can output Swagger and now open API v3 documents. Uh, there's just a ton of things that you can do directly with API Gateway. And it's a really flexible product in terms of how you can use it. So you could put API Gateway in front of Lambda. Sure, absolutely. You could also put it in front of EC2. You could also put it in front of any container technology. You can also put it directly in front of other AWS services. So imagine you had a mobile application that just needed to get some data in and out of DynamoDB, a very basic CRUD interface, if you will. So create, read, update, and delete. You could actually map API Gateway directly in front of DynamoDB and then expose that out to your mobile clients via an API. The other thing you can do with API Gateway is you can actually put it in front of any HTTP or HTTPS endpoint on the internet, including ones that are running inside of your data center, inside of someone else's data center, or anywhere else that it might be. And then lastly, you also have the ability for you to do this in a private sense. So you can run API Gateway inside of your VPC and connect it to backends that are running inside your VPC or over a VPN tunnel back to your own data centers as well. And so you have the ability now to expose APIs through various bits internally and externally, and again, in front of pretty much any HTTP or HTTPS endpoint that you could think of. Now, today we just pre-announced that uh, WebSockets is coming soon. This is really exciting. This is something that's been really heavily requested uh, from the API Gateway team. And we find that a lot of companies are looking to build much more real-time interactive web applications. Uh, there's definitely a, a thought that people are looking for the application that you don't have to click a refresh button on or you know, swipe down on a mobile application to get it to reload something. You want a push-based real-time application. And so with WebSockets, you get that capability. Again, what's great is that you don't have to manage any infrastructure. So API Gateway is a serverless service. All the benefits that you have of it being completely managed for you are there. And again, you pay based on usage with API Gateway. And so when you're not using it, even if it's configured and it's just sitting there, then you're not paying for it. So that's API Gateway. Now, another interesting thing that we see in the API space is a growing shift to something called GraphQL. Now, GraphQL was first uh, open source and released by Facebook a couple of years ago, but it also itself has gone through a very rapid growth over the last couple of years. Uh, Starbucks, for example, powers their mobile application with GraphQL. Um, and their mobile application is one of the most heavily used mobile applications in the United States uh, for doing uh, money transactions at their stores. 
Now, one thing that's really interesting about GraphQL is how it aims to simplify the experience of writing client-driven API interfaces. And so if you think of some of the most even basic examples of where I need to get data that comes from multiple API endpoints and aggregate it in a way into an interface, I might have to make a number of traditional REST-based calls. First, I need to get posts. Then maybe I need to pull out post info, get titles, get authors, get some stats, and eventually I get comments on a post. And that allows me to draw out a full UI of the data that I have. What GraphQL does, in a sense, is act as an aggregator of the ability for you to request data from predefined models, such that you can request various different attributes from different data models, different data stores, and the GraphQL backend will pull that all together to you, for you and make it available. And so your client can just make one call and then get all that information back. And so here in AWS, we have a product called AWS AppSync. Uh, it provides a GraphQL interface back to a number of different backend technologies, including Dynamo, Elasticsearch. You can use Lambda for custom logic. You can also now put it in front of uh, Aurora Serverless uh, via the data API that we also announced about two weeks ago. And so really flexible product. There's a lot of things you can do with it. It also supports a push-based model uh, with something they call subscriptions. And again, it's part of the serverless family and that you don't have to run any servers to make this work for you. And so common pattern that we see in, again, talking about application architectures is the architecture of a serverless web application. And we're seeing more and more and more companies move to this and replacing the traditional end-tier ac application architecture that you would have seen in the past. And so today, using, say, the newer uh, JavaScript libraries on the front end, things like React or Angular or Vue, build your web interface, store it in S3, front that S3 bucket with CloudFront or another CDN, and then have all of your business logic be provided by an API. And this can be provided by API Gateway, backed by Lambda, talking to whatever your data store is, say that's DynamoDB. So in this situation, you could have massive scale, have uh, the ability to have your application automatically scale up and down for you, and only pay for use. Now imagine you're an enterprise. Most enterprises I talk to have dozens, if not hundreds, of very basic applications that sometimes look like a web interface in front of an Excel sheet worth of data. The thing is, you run those servers 24 by 7. Even if your office is only really active, say, 9 to 5, 5 days a week. In this serverless world, you would save a typically pretty incredible amount of money by moving to this and not having infrastructure sitting around idle even when it's not used. With uh, GraphQL and AppSync, basically you would replace the API gateway and then have the ability for AppSync to either talk directly to your data backend or to Lambda or to whatever other interface you had. Again, your front end uh, content could continue to live in S3 and be powered by CloudFront. So really common architectural pattern. We see it growing more and more and more and more. I think that this right here is the future of the majority of what the industry is going to be building applications for uh, over the next decade. Now, there are other patterns. There are patterns that lend themselves, again, to data processing, to real-time event processing, to all sorts of other things that we see companies doing. Uh, basic example, you have an object that gets uploaded to an S3 bucket. This object could be an image, a video file, an audio file, a document that needs translation, a document that needs to be checked for certain text. Uh, and so that object, once put into the S3 bucket, can then invoke a Lambda function. That Lambda function then can go and say comp uh, interface with a service like comprehend or translate or any other service that it needs to. 
with SNS. So SNS, Simple Notification Service, is often used for service-to-service -service communication. You can have it now directly invoke a Lambda function for you, again, thereby simplifying that common architectural pattern. SQS, Simple Queue Service, you can have tons of messages thrown into an SQS queue, have Lambda pull them out and uh, do whatever work that needs to do based on that message in a very, very, very high scale. And so this is a little bit of trivia here, but SQS was the first service that AWS ever announced uh, back in, I believe, 2004. Other service architectures, and I, I forgot here, this, uh, that purple arrow got a little uh, screwed up at some point here. It should be pointing at the Kinesis data stream. But with uh, Kinesis data streams, uh, the ability for you to do massive amounts of ingest, terabits per second of data. You see this being very common in things like log aggregation, uh, click tracking, sensor data, uh, stock market data, all sorts of places where you're getting lots of data points. And you could have Lambda invoked in near real time on that data. And so we see all sorts of various use cases in drawing things like near real time dashboards, again, doing analytics, or even checking for things like fraud or, say, a badly behaving device in an IoT sense. Amazon Lex, so this is a service that can power chatbots. It's also one of the core components of Amazon Alexa. When you're having a conversation with a chatbot, at some point you usually want it to execute or do something for you. And so in this case, the fulfillment of that chatbot could be done by a Lambda function. And then lastly, so I'm a former operations person. I spent the first large chunk of my career in data centers, wiring things up, managing Linux servers. And one thing that I used to have to do quite a lot of was manage cron jobs. Now, how many of you in here manage some cron jobs? Quite a few, I bet. So this is a really simple, basic example. But with CloudWatch events, you have the ability to create scheduled events that can invoke a Lambda function. Now, that Lambda function can do, again, anything that you'd want it to do. Uh, one cool use case, though, is have the Lambda function invoke something called the run command. And so run command is an agent that you can install on servers. And so you can basically replace any sort of cron system that you have with CloudWatch events and with Lambda and potentially with things like the run command from the system manager tool suite and be able to do anything that you want without having to manage any cron servers yourself. So pretty simple solution. Now the last bit of the serverless family that I'll talk about here today is AWS step functions. And so one key best practice that we have with Lambda and with the design of Lambda applications is to not put workflow logic inside your code. So one thing that's very common is that you have a Lambda function that needs to talk to another API-based service, and things fail sometimes. And so you want to have proper retry and failure handling for making those calls. And so potentially you call an API and it fails or it times out, and so you do a retry, or maybe you do an exponential back off and retry. Maybe you do that for a while. You pay for all of that duration of that function, potentially sleeping and waiting to re-invoke or retry that function call. The other thing we'll often see people doing is chaining Lambda functions together. So a Lambda function gets some data back. It says, OK, do I go down path A or path B? Let me invoke that Lambda function, so on, so on, and so on. But if it's somewhere in that process one of those Lambda functions fails, then you could have a really difficult time reconstructing that workflow logic inside of it. And so step functions basically removes the need for you to do this. So you can use step functions to model out really sophisticated business workflows. Uh, has the ability for you to do things like parallelization, decision tree logic, exponential back off and retries, even custom error handling. And then today in Werner's keynote, we announced uh, a slew of improvements to this. Uh, you can now have step functions directly read and put data into a DynamoDB table, put messages into an SNS topic, put messages into an SQS queue, uh, invoke ECS or Fargate container workloads, 
And so we're finding that step functions is really becoming a core component of modern uh, serverless applications. And so definitely check out step functions. There's now just so many different things that you can do with it. Now, what's important to a lot of our customers is that their infrastructure often needs to meet some sort of accreditation standard. Uh, if you happen to deal with medical records, you, in the States, have to deal with HIPAA. If you're processing credit cards, you have to deal with PCI. Uh, there's other standards that are out there for government-based workloads, things like FedRAMP. Um, and so what we've done and what we've worked on over the years is making sure that our services meet the needs of those compliance regimes. And so if you wanted to, you could build pretty much a completely serverless-based credit card processing application or medical record processing application uh, with the suite of services that we have that are all covered under HIPAA, PCI, and other accreditation models. So where would you start? It's the last thing that I'll talk about here today. And one of the great things that we have right now here in the space of serverless is a really awesome, rich ecosystem of partners uh, and tooling. Um, Werner talked a little bit today about Cloud9. He talked a little bit about how we just expanded some of our debugging tools into many other common IDEs. Uh, what you see up here are frameworks that will assist you in writing serverless applications. Uh, some of these are language-based, so they, they, they support one language or another. Some of them support certain types of applications. But at the end of the day, there's basically no reason for you to have to just start in a completely blank code editor and figure out all this stuff from scratch. Uh, these tools exist here to make your life a lot easier and uh, be able to do quite a bit. Now, one tool that we have that's becoming a really huge growing part of the serverless ecosystem for us here at AWS is a tool called AWS SAM. It's the little, the little squirrel guy over there. So what SAM stands for is serverless application models. It's a template-driven way of modeling serverless applications, uh, building and deploying them. And it, it's got quite a lot of capabilities, but it really simplifies the work that you have to do in defining your serverless applications uh, and being able to create reusable patterns out of them. And one thing that we released a little over a year ago is something called the SAM CLI. And what the SAM CLI allows you to do is local debug and test of serverless applications. But you can even go further than that. Today with the SAM CLI, you can create a completely brand new serverless project, basically containing all of the getting started files that you would need and structure that we would recommend. You could do local debug and test. You can deploy, you can package and deploy that application, and then you can tail the logs of that application in production locally from the CLI. And so this is a must in terms of tooling for building serverless applications, and there's a lot of things that we're doing that go inside of this. And in talking about IDEs, so in Cloud9, which is our managed IDE service, we have SAM built in. And so what you see here in this screenshot is that in the middle pane, I have my Lambda function code. And then on the far right-hand side, I actually have the SAM interface. And so I could sit here and write code and in real time execute my Lambda function locally and test it. So I can write code, test, write code, test, write code, test, and then at some point ship my function. And so it's just that easy. And again, you can run SAM on pretty much any laptop or workstation that you have, uh, Linux, Mac, or Windows. And so you don't have to use Cloud9 for this, but it is something that's integrated. And then the last component that's part of this ecosystem is the serverless application repository. So today we announced something called nested applications inside of the serverless app repo. What this allows you to do, and again, going back and talking about the repeatable patterns that we see customers do. What you could do with serverless app repo is you can consume or publish either publicly or privately applications that can then be reused in multiple different ways. And so an example of this is that I could have a API gateway Lambda authorizer, so something that provides authorization capabilities for my API, that I would typically plug into an API gateway. 
With nested applications, you could create inside of your business a standardized authorizer, share it out with everyone inside your organization, and then tell people when they build serverless APIs to nest inside of that application this authorizer. And so those teams won't have to manage that, or they won't have to know how that authorizer necessarily works or how it was written. They can just consume it. And so there's a couple hundred apps inside the app repo today. Lots of great ways for you to learn about various different application architectures. Uh, inside of app repo, we support uh, step functions, uh, APIs, queues, topics, all sorts of things. And so you can pretty much find an example of an application that you're probably thinking about writing already there today. So that's our view into the serverless technologies and tools that we have. But now what I'd really love to do is bring up a customer to talk about their experience. And so I'd like to invite Samya on stage from Centrica to talk about their journey from a very traditional stack up to a serverless application. So thank you, Samya. Thank you, Chris. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Samya Serpal. I work as an engineering manager for Centrica in the UK. And I'll be sharing with you the experience of our serverless journey with AWS. So for those who don't know, Centrica is an energy and services company. Uh, we've got uh, five key focus areas uh, for two of them, energy supply and services. Uh, we operate under the brands of uh, British Gas in the UK, Bordgash in Ireland, and Direct Energy here in North America. <clears throat> Hive is our connected homes brand, uh, which has a strong presence in the UK and has been recently launched in the US as well as some countries in Europe. Our other key focus areas include distributed energy and power and energy marketing and trading. We've got over 25 million customer accounts across all our brands and geographies. And in 2017, we clocked slightly over 28 billion pounds of revenue. So today, I'm going to specifically talk about British Gas Business, which is the B2B arm of Centric in the UK. We've got over 600,000 customer accounts uh, through which we cater to our small and medium enterprise as well as our large business customers. <clears throat> Digital is uh, key to our strategy, and over 50% of our transactions currently flow through online. Our website is a sales and self-serve portal, which allows our customers to get a quote online, buy energy online, and then once they are on supply, then they can register for an online account and then manage their energy account holdings online, which involves submitting their reads, viewing their bills, making payments. And we also have some static information content on our website. And as a strategy, we want to push more and more transactions online uh, in order to provide better customer experience to our users, as well as drive down our costs. But until a couple of years ago, our architecture didn't really support that. It was mainly because it looked something like this, a big monolith, um, Three-tier Java application, uh, very hard to change. A lot of tight coupling between different uh, components on the server side, especially between presentation tier and business logic, which meant that even the smallest of changes that we made on any part of the website required a comprehensive amount of testing. Anything to do with infrastructure monitoring, upgrades, or maintenance was uh, really uh, slow and expensive. And if you had to introduce any new components, that was really difficult as well. And finally, in terms of our release cycles, the best we could manage uh, was monthly releases. And our cycle time easily ran into months, sometimes even quarters. So a question comes to mind as to how did we end up with this monolith? Well, uh, we believe that the answer lies in uh, Conway's law, which states that any organization generally designs a system which uh, reflects its uh, communication structure. So in our case, our website uh, was delivered, was built and uh, evolved on a series of uh, long-running site-wide projects. 
And to enable um, change across this platform, we would stand up dreams uh, which would actually deliver these changes on top of each other. So to break out of that cycle, we reorganize ourselves from these uh, delivery-focused and project-based teams to more customer-focused and product-centric uh, teams. And these teams were organized around non-overlapping functional areas, which allowed them to release independently of each other, at least on the front-end side, which we uh, enabled through implementing a client-side JavaScript framework called Ember.js. However, on the server side, we still had a monolith you know, in our way, so to speak. So to address that, we came up with a three-pronged approach. After a lot of you know, um, experiment, a lot of thought and research, uh, we decided that we needed to fragment for autonomy. So there was no doubt in our mind that we couldn't continue with the monolith that we had and give our teams the required autonomy that they needed. Uh, secondly, for agility and for transparency, security, and you know, ensuring uptime of our application, we had to move to the cloud. And finally, we required, uh, we recognized that we needed a change in our culture and the way we operated by bringing operations within the development team. And also, we, we, could, we, we need to automate whenever we are ready, uh, so automate everything so we can deploy whenever we are ready. But uh, why serverless? Um, so our, our main objectives were to increase agility and autonomy and uh, drive down our costs. And that's why we ruled out lifting and shifting our monolith to any version of the cloud, because even though it might have helped us with a bit of cost reduction, but it wouldn't have given us the required agility and autonomy that we were looking for. <clears throat> we also experimented by writing a couple of uh, microservices in uh, different teams' architecture. And we quickly realized that uh, even though it helped us uh, quite a lot with agility and autonomy, it came with a significant increase in costs that comes with you know, building, owning, and running your own microservice, uh, microservices landscape. <clears throat> However, with the serverless, what we figured was that we were actually able to leverage all the benefits that a microservices architecture has to offer without actually worrying about any of the complexity or the cost that comes along with, along with a platform like that. And this was the main reason why we decided to go with serverless. So how did we actually, um, what, what approach did we actually take to migrate our workloads into serverless? So we started off very small with a very small proof of concept. Uh, this involved taking an existing microservice that we had you know, experimented with earlier and porting that into a Lambda function. We fronted that with an API gateway. This was uh, mainly a manual de deployment, but we did end up learning a lot about CloudFormation and SAM in the process. The idea here was to learn and uh, generally you know, familiarize ourselves with the whole new architecture and the new way of working. And the POC ran quite successfully in one of our lower environments. And that gave us the confidence to move on to the next phase, which was engagement with the rest of the organization. And here, we wanted to ensure that we bring the whole organization along with us on this serverless journey, because this is something that had not been done, at least at this scale, any, anywhere else in Centrica. So we created a serverless working group, which had representations from enterprise architecture, from networks, from security, from service design introduction. And this ensured that we could capture all the requirements that they had for us to actually facilitate a successful production pilot, which was our next phase. And for the pilot, we had to choose a journey that was complex enough for us to you know, learn something about migrating a significant workload into serverless. But at the same time, it has to be simple and isolated enough 
so that we don't impact the rest of the application and also we don't take too long to actually finish our pilot. So we chose our guest meter read journey, which allows our customers to give us a meter read uh, without actually logging into their account. And uh, <clears throat> we did this with the help of uh, four people. So there was one architect, two developers, and one QA. And we did spend a lot of time in actually designing and thinking how to actually go about doing this. But the actual development time, once we had figured out what we were doing, was barely two months. Well, there were other factors which uh, caused us to, you know, caused us a bit of delay in going live. But, the, but that had nothing to do with the actual you know, development that was done you know, fairly quickly. And I'd like to, I'd like to just you know, highlight that the original journey took more than twice the amount of time to build an old stack. So in the end, the, the uh, pilot was extremely successful. And within a month, we were able to send all the traffic onto this journey. And uh, we successfully moved on to the next phase in which we are currently, which is expansion of the rest of our estate into serverless. So we have just gone live with Cognito last week, and we've taken a user-by-user -user migration approach. So as and when our customers log into our website, we are migrating them, pulling them one by one into Cognito. We'll be doing the same with our customer service agents. And we'll be following that with uh, moving our front-end apps into S3 and from that with uh, CloudFront. This will be followed by even more lambdas, which will be now done by different teams um, as they progress. And in the end, we plan to move our database again into uh, a combination of Aurora DB as well as DynamoDB for serverless. So these are some of the cloud adoption principles that, were, that we found quite helpful, and I thought I'll share with you. Uh, there are a bunch of enterprise essentials there, which, uh, were, which were a result of the requirements that we got from the other teams during our engagement phase. So this essentially uh, revolves around which region we decided to run our workloads in, how would the ingress and egress would happen, and what are the production security controls when it came to both design as well as uh, security by design as well as security in operations. And on the right-hand side, you'll see these are some something that we call as cloud necessities. These are things that you really should be doing to leverage the power of the cloud, and especially of the AWS platform. So we obviously asked for our own dedicated AWS account to minimize the blast radius. We decided to go uh, with a cloud-native approach, so we didn't have to spend any time in making any of the tools work with each other. These things just work seamlessly behind the scenes. And uh, finally, we decided to go for a complete automated uh, deployment into production using CloudFormation and Code Pipeline. Oops, sorry. So this is what our new architecture looks like. It sits uh, alongside our old architecture, works uh, seamlessly uh, alongside that. We, our, our apps are, uh, make API calls from the browser, which are forwarded by our enterprise WAF to an Amazon API gateway. Uh, from there, the API gateway invokes the relevant Lambda functions which in turn invoke the relevant uh, on-premise APIs to, to push and fetch the data from our backend systems. We use uh, S3 and SES for storing and uh, sending, storing our email templates and sending our emails. And we use uh, SNS for Lambda-to-Lambda -lambda communication. Our dev tools uh, include CodeCommit as our Git repo, where we use CodeBuild for building it. And we use a combination of CloudFormation and CodePipeline for deploying our code as well as running all of our units, uh, unit tests, uh, uh, automation tests, as well as our UI tests. We make heavy use of all the management and security services uh, that are provided by AWS. 
And these were all quite easy to integrate and didn't really take much effort on our part to actually get them working together. The only thing to note over there is that you would probably see a proxy server on the far right corner. That is not owned by us. That's by our core networks account, uh, wherein they inspect all the internet-bound traffic. And uh, our hope is that one day they also move to a more serverless approach. But that's the way it is. Uh, as a team, we are completely serverless in this new stack. So looking back, here are some of the lessons uh, that we learned. Um, the first one is that there's a lot of new things to learn, a lot of new ground to cover. So please take small steps when you start off. Secondly, uh, one of the things that I alluded to earlier, which delayed us, was that we decided to integrate with a new set of, of on-premise uh, systems APIs, which weren't properly tested before. And this caused us a delay of significant of a couple of months, which uh, pushed our pilot out by a few months. So if you're starting off and this is all brand new, try and integrate with existing APIs instead of new ones. Um, anything to do with connectivity takes a while, so please engage your networks teams early and start those conversations as soon as you can. And uh, finally, anything that we didn't automate uh, slowed us down. So even if someone says that we've only got to do this once, but if something is manual and laborious, then I'd recommend that you automate it because it pays off in the long run. Uh, finally, some of the benefits, that, at least the three key main benefits that I can uh, think of. First one is definitely uh, an order of uh, magnitude reduction in the cost. Uh, something that uh, we've, uh, one of the reasons why we actually chose to you know, go serverless. Second is just the focus on our business logic uh, so that we can build the right customer experience. This is something that we were never able to do, uh, never able to do before. And uh, finally, we've been able to achieve the required agility that we were looking for. And on the new stack, we can actually go live whenever we want. And our cycle time is now actually down to days and weeks. So at this point, I would like to, I'd like to just thank AWS for all the support in our journey so far, and also for inviting us here to share our story with you. Thank you. Thank you, Samya. That was a great story. And again, one that highlights most of what Werner was talking about here today and what I've been talking about in understanding, again, what the benefits of serverless are and how they impact your organization. Uh, some of you talked about how it was just four people on the team that led the POC that drove to them making this shift in this project. All right, so this is the type of thing that you have to invest entire organizations of your business into uh, making something be successful. Talked about the greatly reduced operational overhead, and that's maybe one of those things that companies don't realize how much time they're spending managing resources until they don't have to do that anymore. It can be kind of amazing when you're like, wow, we have all this free time to focus on what's important. So again, think about the, the non-technical benefits, as it were, the more human aspects of what serverless brings to you. This is, again, what we continue to hear from companies about what they're seeing and what excites them about serverless. Uh, almost everything that I talked about here today and almost everything that you've heard this week about serverless, uh, you could find out more on the AWS Amazon.com slash serverless landing page. If you go up to the resources page, up in that, type, that top white bar there, you're going to find links to videos from this week, to videos from previous reInvents, to uh, tutorials, getting started guides, other customer case studies, uh, webinars, Twitch live streams, all sorts of stuff. It's basically our holding pen of all the information that we have. And so again, you can find tons of things there. I want to again thank you for coming to this. I want to thank Samya for coming and speaking uh, on behalf of Centrica. Thank you all for coming out to reInvent. We hope you had a great week and hope we see you here next year. So thank you. <laughs>